So if you've been with us over the number of weeks, you'll know that we're partway through, nearly halfway through, a series that comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. And in that little letter, um, Peter is writing to Christians living in a place called Turkey, that we would call Turkey, um, and he's writing to a minority groups of Christians. You got, one of the things that's worth remembering is that when the, you're reading the New Testament, the New Testament is always written to small groups of people. There weren't buildings like this. And there probably would have been very few occasions for <laughs> churches every week. I'll stand up here. Um, for churches every week where even this number of people would be together. And there's less of us this morning than perhaps normal. But it would be unusual to have this many people in one place worshipping together. So they would always tend to feel a little on the edge, a little marginalized perhaps, overlooked. And your neighbors would think you were odd. Now your neighbors might think you're odd already for a whole number of other reasons. They might not even know you're Christians. But if you think about it, if you try to explain to your neighbor, they probably know you go to church. But if you explain to your neighbor just what you believed, they would think you were odd. If you explain to your neighbor that actually you believe that all of this is created, not just an accident. If you, if you explain to them that you believe the God who created the whole world by his spirit lives within you. If you explain to them that in, during a day you would read a book that was last added to about 2,000 years ago. But you believe that God spoke to you through that book and through impressions that you could hear God speak to you they would think you're very odd. They would think you were strange because you believe that the end of all of this will be when Jesus returns. That it's not going to end in a whimper, but it's going to end in a brilliant trumpet of triumph because Jesus is going to come back again. How strange would they think you were? I think it's best just to tell them you go to church. Because you're stranger than you look. I know, Mark, it's hard to believe, but it's true. So these little groups of Christians, when they were having the New Testament letters and stories of Jesus being written to, they were being written for them because actually what the early disciples knew was that if you were going to live this story out, you had to demonstrate it because it was so difficult to explain. You have to almost show it. And one of the ways you do that is in character. And so when Peter writes to these little groups of Christians, he says, God has given you everything you need to live for him. Everything you need, God has given you. There's no excuse. So will you add to your faith? Will you make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge? And today I want to look at self-control. Will you add to your faith self-control? Control, Because as then people see the way you act, they might believe something bigger. Do you remember when you were a kid? If you did something wrong, how many of you said, I couldn't help it. (laughs) I couldn't help it. Not my fault. I couldn't help it. And your parents said words to the effect, of course you could. Of course you could. 
And what they meant was, you could have controlled yourself better. And as a parent, you may well have said the same. When we talk about self-control, it feels as though, well, it's, it's in you. It's almost like any of these characteristics, it's almost like, you know, a preacher just comes and goes, stop it. Just stop it. Or try harder. But we've all struggled with it, haven't we? All the good things that God gives us or allowed us to create, all of them, they can get a hold of us. And we can find that we can't shake them. We start off using them, and then they use us. And when, whatever it might be, and when you are aware that you're being controlled by something else, it's easy to just feel a failure. Because we feel we ought to be able to do something about it all. And we tell ourselves, I can stop any time, you know. So let me take one example that's kind of easier for us to talk about. Your phone. How many of you, and you don't need to answer this, (laughs) but how many of you have been told by someone else, will you just get off your phone? Will you just stop looking at your phone? Stop scrolling. And you go, I could stop any time I liked. I'm not addicted, you know. It's not a problem. I just need to know whether there's any more news that have come off of the BBC news site in the last 30 seconds. Or I need to know whether anybody else on Facebook is saying anything more interesting than you are right to me, <laughs> to me right now. I'm not controlled by it. Until you lose it. Or until you decide you're going to leave it at home one day when you go out for a day and you don't have the phone. Could you do that? Really? I was once doing a training exercise for ministers and um, often, I've, I've got, a, you know, truth is, oftentimes the leaders that I was working with used to enjoy what we did except for this one time. Because... I said to them, before we begin, can you put all your phones in the basket at the back and then come back and get your seats? And all the ministers were like, no, no, we can't. No, we can't. And it's like, you know, just leave your phone at the back. You don't need it because you're not going to answer it. No, we can't. And it was really interesting. We can't. Now, of course, it's not any of us in the room that has this problem. It's always them. But I think it's you can see how something that you use becomes something that then controls you. And then when someone says to you, you have no self-control, it's hard to hear, isn't it? Let's go back to all those other things. You might be watching telly or sport or alcohol or food or work or a number of things. You just have no control. And if someone says that to you, most of us get really defensive because it feels like we've failed. Or if someone says to us, you've lost control. 
feels like an ultimate failure. Before the New Testament was written, there were many people in the Greek world particularly who were like philosophers and they would write books and they were very influential. It was kind of like, I suppose it would be the equivalent for us today of like the self-help books that you've got on your shelves. You know, those of us who've tried to lose weight in the past, how many dieting books have we bought? You know, it's all those sort of things that you put on yourself to help you. And there were lots of those sort of books around, or social media influencers, people who were trying to shape the way other people lived. And the Greeks highly prized this idea of self-control. So it was like common. The whole of their culture knew that they wanted self-control, but they knew there was a problem, and this was the problem. See if you can... I can explain it properly. What they knew was this, that self-control was the ability to control your emotions and your reactions. Uh, and actions, actually. And often it was, um, it, it, often it was in the sexual context that you, you were in control of the way you acted towards other people. But also in terms of your temper or in terms of your emotion, that you were able to control it. And the Greeks said the good people, good people, practice self-control. So you control yourself. But they knew if you've lost control, how can the self that lost control take control? And that was the problem they knew they had. It's one thing to say, you just need more self-control. But you've demonstrated, I've got no self-control. Myself can't control the things that I am facing. And the Greeks knew this. But everybody wanted it. So it wasn't surprising then when Paul and James and Peter all write about self-control lots of times actually. But what they were starting with was this. You're right. You don't have enough power. You don't have enough power. But there's one that lives within you that will give you the power that you might actually live differently. And it's the Spirit of God. I guess lots of us would know that feeling of, I'll turn over a new leaf. Tomorrow, I'll try harder. Tomorrow, I'm not going to lose my temper. Tomorrow, I'm not going to say those things that I know are not helpful. Tomorrow... I'm not going to eat as much. Tomorrow, I'm not going to drink as much. Tomorrow, I'm going to have time and really be present for people and not just be on my phone all the time. And at the end of the day, but these New Testament writers said, actually, there's one who lives within you who will give you the power to say no. You don't need to be at the mercy of all of these things. And in the list that Peter uses of uh, faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control, that word can literally, not literally, but it can be translated as get a grip. It's like that's the word for self-control he's using, get a grip. It's an interesting word. It's only used six times in the New Testament, but look where they're used. I think it's interesting how he uses, how they're used. So here... Get a grip. It's a building block of life. Get a grip. In Galatians, it's the same word, which is a fruit of the Spirit. 
So one of the things that the Spirit wants to give you is the ability to get a grip. In Acts chapter 24, Paul is on trial and he's speaking to a really powerful pair of politicians. Um, A guy called Felix and his wife Drusilla. And uh, it was a complicated situation where Felix had got into power and then decided he wanted Drusilla who was married to someone else. And so he made a divorce and he took her as his wife. And it's interesting that Paul's on trial for his life, and he talks about the kingdom of God, and he talks about righteousness, and he talks about getting a grip. And in that context, what Paul is doing is saying, you can't just act as you want, even if you're one of the most important people in the empire. It's a very dangerous thing for Paul to do, but a very courageous thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9, um, it's used in the context of relationships. It's when Paul is writing to people in Corinth, and they had a really skewed ideas in that church in Corinth. But he said to people, he said, listen, if you can't, con- if you can't get a grip of your own sexual impulses and you're in a relationship, for heaven's sake, just get married. Now, if you're not married and you're younger and you wish to get married, please don't go and find someone and say, I just can't control myself. Will you marry me? It tends not to end well. But Paul's saying in that context, if you can't control your sexual... ...25, act like an athlete, live like an athlete, get... Uh, another little New Testament book called Titus. Titus writes to the church in Crete and he explains to the church what sort of church leaders you should be looking for. And one of them is this. One of the qualities, one of the characteristics is find people who are church leaders who've got self-control. Who don't use power to their own ends. Who don't lose their temper. Who don't injure people. Find leaders like that. Now, those are the six times where this word is used in particular. But what Titus does then, he uses a range of words, all referring to the same things. And he explains to whom he's writing. And it's in chapter 2 of Titus. And Shirley's going to come and read for us um, that text this morning. So Shirley, if you're ready. And we've got it on the screen here. And I've kind of... Um, put in red the number of references to self-control that are there um, so you might see them as you go along do you want me to hold this for you is that easier are you okay yeah you must teach you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine teach the older men to be temperate teach the old worthy of respect self-controlled and sound in faith in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home and to be kind, and to be subject to their husband so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, 
so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone... So let's just go through them again. So older men, teach them to be self-controlled. Older women, interestingly, only the older women don't get told to be self-controlled. You've clearly got this solved. If you're an older woman here, uh, it's just not for you. You can zone out of this sermon, go, this is not for me. It's for the men and the younger women. But the younger women, let them learn to be self-controlled and pure. To the young men, be self-controlled. It's kind of like, to the whole church, this is an issue. Show the integrity. And he doesn't say it specifically, but with slaves... Don't answer back, even when you would love to. Don't steal for them, even when you could. Show them that you can be trusted. Make faith attractive, because the grace of God has come, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Don't let anybody look down on you. So how do we... Learn to say no. I think one of the things that's really, I mean, hey, we're all learning, aren't we? And we, and we could have this conversation. We will have this conversation in house groups, and it's probably the better place for it, to be honest. But how do you learn self-control? I think the first thing is, you own up to the things that are controlling you. Church isn't always, but should be, the place, the church community should be the place where we are unashamed and unafraid of going, I'm struggling with whatever it is. Because together, all of us know we've got no right to judge other people because we've all been saved. And are being saved and will be saved. So if I tell you I've got a problem with X. I might trust you enough for you not to go, well I can't believe that, how dare you. But actually to come alongside me and go, let me help you. But I can't if I don't own up. And the problem with most of our addictions 
are that they're secret. And it's why they get a control of us, because we can't say it. You, you will, some of you will have experienced it, but all of us will know. When you go to an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous, what's the first thing you say? You tell them your name and you declare to the whole group, I am an alcoholic. If you can't say that, you're not ready to be released from the addiction that controls you. I think in church, sometimes we're much happier talking about sin in general than sins particular. Eh? I'm a sinner saved by grace. He's, he set me free from my sin. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. So the first thing is, how do I say no? I've got to own up. Secondly, I think I've got to understand my drives. What are the drivers for this? When I feel insecure, am I more likely to engage in activities that I know have a hold on me? Or if I've done something and I've, I've, I've worked hard or I've been involved in something hard, do I feel somehow I earn a reward? I deserve that third drink because it's been such a stressful day. Or if I'm lonely or alone. If I'm lonely or alone. Or if I'm simply not self-aware. Or if it's something like your temper. When you feel right. How many of you have stripped someone else because you thought you were right? And there's something about our growth in God where we make every effort to add to our faith, self-control, is actually, do you understand yourself better? I think one of the things about maturing as a Christian is, the idea is that when you get to the end of your life, you are really at ease with who you are. <laughs> Self-aware and unafraid. Second thing, I accept my responsibility. I own up. When things get a hold of us, it's easy to blame someone else. Some of us have grown up from almost from childhood with the fear that someone's going to really, really either shame us or tell us off in such a way that we can't own up to what we've done wrong. And so we live a defended life. But actually, if I can own up and say, it's no one else's fault that I lose my temper, it's just mine. I can't blame anybody else. It's me. Then I'm able to build in self-control. And thirdly, you learn the habit of saying no. No to the things that you shouldn't be doing. 
When I was, uh, when, we, when we were younger and just married, um, one of the things that God has gifted me with, I, th- I think it's a gift of God, is a quick response time. You should have seen me when I was young. A quick response time. I, I can listen to anybody and make a quick response. And uh, it's, I, I, it's what makes me laugh a lot. I laugh at my own responses because I think they're brilliant. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, in, a, in certain contexts, it means I can be witty, I can be funny, I can be all those sort of things. No, I can. <laughs> I really hope you find another church. <laughs> um, but the flip side of it is, the flip side of all of that, particularly when I was younger, is I could be sarcastic, I could be cutting, I could strip someone with just a comment. Because it was the same speed. Now, as my fellow colleague knows, sometimes he will say, Neil, I can't believe you just said that. But you should have heard me when I was young. (laughs) And when we were first married, um, Maggie was on the receiving end of that too often. And I had to learn, and I'm still learning, but I had to learn to say no to a certain way of responding. And the reason, it was when I was insecure and frightened. You see, when I was a kid growing up, I was always pretty skinny and small. I, I've, never, I've not always been this tall. Um, or this muscular. <laughs> for that as well. So I was, I was kind of like this skinny little kid at school. So if you're skinny and little... There's two things you need to be able to do. Is one, learn how to run fast, which I did. And the second is you fight with words. And I learned that really, really well. Really well. Being a Christian has been a pathway of many things for me, but one of the pathways has been how can you use your mouth to better effect than left to its own? Um, please don't go and ask Maggie at the end of this service, is he, any, actually, is he any better than he was? Please don't ask her that question. But I fear what I might have become had I not had the spirit at work within me, trying to soften me, that I might be more aware and learn a different way of being a man of God. I tell you that, not for you to gossip about me or say, yes, well, we always knew. But to say those three things have been part of my own journey of understanding my own drivers, of accepting responsibility and learning a new habit. And maybe, just maybe, they work whatever your issue is. But the other thing, of course, is self-control is where we say yes to more. Where we say yes to God, where we say yes in prayer to him, when we say yes, come and fill me, when we say yes to worship, when we say yes to listening to the word of God, when we say yes to community where we are willing to be vulnerable, when we say yes more, God is more able to work with us. See, ironically, it's not, 
and this might sound a bit strange for me to say, it's not enough just to come to church because I can come to church and be as guarded and as defended as anybody else and actually I can come to church and do as much damage here as anywhere else. It's actually about saying yes to God. Yes, if you're struggling with alcohol, there may be a whole number of things that you need to put in place in your life. But one of the things would be saying yes to God. If it's porn, if it's work, you just can't stop working because you're frightened of what you'll have to face if you stop working. Whatever it might be. It's not just saying no, it's saying yes. There is a no. The grace of God has come and it teaches us to say no. But there's also a yes. God's at work in us. When we gather together, one of the things we do is we acknowledge our brokenness. And central to Christian worship is communion, where bread is broken. And we remind ourselves, we tell ourselves the same story that we've told each other for 2,000 years, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken. And he said it to 12 men who were broken. And in identifying himself with the brokenness, their salvation. And he took the cup and he took the wine and he said, this wine is the cup of the new covenant, the new agreement between God and you. Take it, you're included. It's for you. And one of those guys is sitting around the table going, I don't know if I've got enough courage not to deny him later. One of those guys sitting around the room goes, I don't know if I've got enough courage not to betray him and give him over. One of those guys going, I'm only here because I think it's all going to end up so badly, Thomas. Etc., etc. But to the broken, he offers his brokenness. The self-righteous have got nothing to receive. The broken have everything to gain. So when we gather and we take bread and we take wine, we examine ourselves. And it is a chance for us to say, in your brokenness, Lord Jesus, heal my brokenness. Maybe in the stillness, it's worth just naming it. Maybe in the stillness, it's recognizing that sometimes what you have said has broken relationships, damaged them. And actually you want God to give you new start, new 
words, new ways of living with those who are the closest to you. Maybe it's just difficult to control the drives within you, the sexual drives within you. Lord Jesus, I come with my brokenness. Fill me again. Lord, I overeat, I overdrink, I watch too much rubbish on television because I can't say no. Lord Jesus, come and heal my brokenness. Jesus, too often I just say the first thing that comes into my head, regardless of what the effect is, and it breaks other people. Lord, heal my brokenness. Lord Jesus, sometimes when I'm lonely or afraid, I self-medicate. I use drugs in ways that weren't designed to be. I rely on them too much. Lord Jesus, come and heal my brokenness. Let's just take a minute. And maybe you might know what you'd want to ask God. I'm not wanting to put guilt trips on any of us. The whole point of this is confession allows you to receive. It doesn't lead to condemnation. But maybe just in the quietness, there's a moment where you're just able to be honest with God and examine your own self before you come and receive the broken bread and the cup of forgiveness.